Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you uh, find yourself welcome. I hope you find something connectional and uh, meaningful you and with you walk with Jesus this week. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering. We thank you for this time together with each other in person and by the wonder of our electronics online. We ask that you would send your spirit among us this morning, that our worship might be joyful in your sight, and that we might be able to let go of the things that hold us back from true worship, from distraction, from all those things that are part of life, and simply immerse ourselves and draw close to you. Thank you so much, Father, for love and grace in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I want to take an opportunity to highlight a word thought of the day. It's beyond, and it's part of the sermon title, Beyond Limit. And I hope it functions as you think through things this week as sort of a a focus word, something to remember, something to take action on. I hope that it's not beyond comprehension of a sermon. So... We'll try the best we can with that. Um, My thoughts this morning are focused, in fact, by the reason Pastor Will asked me to pinch hit for him this morning. It's really a complicated little tale, but the intention for this sermon this morning was a few weeks ago on January 21st. You may recall uh, what some of us around here are calling Snowmageddon. And church services for that morning were canceled because earlier in the week we'd had 10 or 12 inches of snow and there was a nasty accumulation that just wouldn't go away and it was below freezing for several days and we couldn't clear the parking lot and the side streets in Oak Ridge couldn't get cleared. So we just had to cancel services. But the point of all that is that Will had planned that weekend to be in Pigeon Forge with our youth group. And they were going to participate, Will, with the leadership and the kids from Kern, at the spiritual retreat event called Resurrection. And I don't know how many of you are connected to that or even know, but Resurrection is an event opportunity for literally thousands of young people all across the Holston Conference to gather together in Pigeon Forge for praise and worship and to hear the very latest in Christian music and seminars on faith and small group gatherings and roundtable discussions about topics that teenagers are interested in and an opportunity to build relationship with each other among the group as well as the other youth groups around and lo and behold even some free time. But the thing that fascinates me about all of that is the name given to that list of activities. Resurrection. Why would it be named that way? So, if you're willing for even just a few minutes to consider that question, then perhaps you appreciate, perhaps you're sensitive to the idea that resurrection might be a little bit of an elusive term for quite a lot of folks. Both those of faith and those a little bit less sure. Because it comes with so much mystery and doubt, In our culture, good gracious, we need an owner's manual or a YouTube video to make it real. So we don't have those things, and it causes problems for people in what they expect. And, of course, our Bible has some things to say about resurrection, but the language there is very, very limited. 
by both the power and capability of language and the expectations that human impose on everything. So we're going to dig in on that just a little bit. I'm going to tell you a story, and I, perhaps some of you have heard this story before. I've probably told this story before, and if I have, I apologize. But I need it here to help me make a point. Kindergarten teacher is getting the attention of her five and six-year-olds, and she's got an assignment for them this morning. And she says, boys and girls, I want you to clear your desk of everything except a full-size sheet of your favorite color of construction paper and your box of crayons. And I want you to draw something for me that makes you very, very happy. And so there's the bustle and noise of kids scooting their desk and moving around and doing all the things they're supposed to do. And then they get quiet and they're all drawing. And the teacher walks among the rows and columns of desks looking at what they're drawing. And she prods a student now and then whose mind's wandering or she asks a question to help somebody focus on what they're doing now and then. And you know what the teacher's seeing. She's seeing all these little two-dimensional houses with a little box chimney and a little curly cue of smoke coming out of there. And maybe there's a scraggly tree in the front yard and a nearly round sunshine that's yellow and has little rays of light coming off. Maybe there's a dog or a swing set in the front yard. You know the drill. You know exactly what they were drawing. But as the teacher moved around the room and she got near the back of the room, she saw one piece of paper that was full of drawing and is very colorful, but she had no idea what it was. And it gave her pause and she hesitated and she was wondering about that. And she finally decided to say, well, good morning, little Susie. What is it that you're drawing for me today? And Susie didn't even look up. She's just coloring and going after it. And she says, I'm drawing God. And the teacher's perplexed now. Because God's not a topic that's supposed to come up in school anymore. And moreover, it doesn't look like God to her. So she doesn't know what to do with that. And so she finally decides to say, well, Susie, sweetie, nobody knows what God looks like. Susie still hadn't looked up, little tongue sticking out. She's drawing hard as she can. She says, well, they will in a minute. Okay, it's a cute little story. But it emphasizes the concept when the, there's not many facts and details known or agreed upon personal perspective is everything. And that personal perspective always comes with a serious, serious dose of your own experience with these things and your inspiration to even care and, importantly, your adeptness with language and art and how it is you express things that are really hard to express. So, now I'm going to give you an assignment. It's only going to last a few seconds. Don't sweat. But I want you to let your mind go on to this for a second. What if I asked you to describe the purpose and operation of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, except you have to explain it to people who walk the earth when Jesus preached in Galilee, and you can only use words and phrases that they're familiar with? So, for example, you can't say airplane. You can't say displacement. You can't say power reactor. You can't say any of that stuff. But you have to explain to them what this is for and how it works. So how would you do that? You already know, in just a few seconds I let you think about that, 
that despite your very best metaphors and analogy of analogies that you're going to drag out and use to describe that, that there's going to be all kinds of crazy mental images developing from what you're trying to say. And almost all of those mental images are going to be comically incorrect from what you're trying to describe. And there's going to be misunderstanding and confusion and probably an incredible amount of doubt that what you're talking about is even possible. Yet you know it's true. You probably saw one on the news today. So remember, Spirit-inspired and written by the most devout of followers, the Bible remains an attempt to describe something that's absolutely indescribable. Right? It's hard to deny that. So, God, His creation, His kingdom, His call on each of us, His love, His promise of eternal life, what words do you have to describe that adequately? And moreover, even if you thought you could describe it adequately, wouldn't that render it kind of disappointing in some way, if you could? So, with that preamble, now let's dig into that text that we read a little bit earlier today. It begins with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, being put into prison. And the significance of that is that's the earthly signal for Christ to begin His earthly ministry. He leaves the, not exactly the shadows, but He comes to the forefront now in full presence. And now this is happening. And... The writer of the gospel text this morning, Mark, says that the very first thing that Jesus does when that happens is he announces that the time for Messiah has come. Remember, the Jews have been waiting 2,000 years on Messiah. The time for Messiah has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then stuff starts happening. 97.5% of the gospel happens after the kingdom of God arrives. So, I'm going to say that again for its simplicity and its completeness. The kingdom of God shows up and stuff starts happening. I could even quip if I was going for comedy that all hell breaks loose. But turns out that that's a lot closer to spiritually true than it is funny. So we'll just let it go altogether. But we could stop right there and we'd have a lot to think about. But I don't want to stop right there. I want to keep going a little bit more. Jesus starts his journey, his mission, and he taps four fishermen on the shoulder and says, come, follow me. And I think it's really significant that he doesn't hand them a newcomer's bag that has a refrigerator magnet and a Chick-fil-A coupon in it and say, this is what you need to know. Get back to me. And he doesn't hand them a rough draft of the New Testament and say, this is like a manual. Read it and if you have questions, call the church office. He says, come, follow me. Be where I am and you will live the very best life possible. Just be where I am. We don't know what else Jesus and the disciples said to each other, but we do know that this encounter with Jesus was absolutely irresistible for these men. And we know because their lives were changed completely. Three of these four men gave their lives for their faith. They died for a faith, for somebody that just said, 
come on, follow me. And another one spent the second half of his life in lonely exile for the same reason. We know their stories because they followed. But remember, when the kingdom of God showed up, and this is its purpose, everyone was invited. So don't make the mistake of reading this story and hearing it and thinking about it and oh, that's a quaint little story about calling Simon, Peter, James, Andrew, and John. Turns out it's also about calling Zebedee and the workers in the boat and all of you because that's why the kingdom of God came. We know their stories because they followed. Zebedee and the others may have followed later that day or later in their life. We don't know. And we don't know about us either because our stories are still being written. But the call itself is for everybody. But I want to ask you, what does it mean to be called by God? So, Michelle and I, my wife, just recently returned from a three-week photo safari in Africa. And it was quite an adventure, I'll tell you what. Africa uh, is a incredible place and so much different than here I can't even get there but we went to Tanzania Tanzania's northern border to help you locate it is just barely south of the equator and Tanzania is on the far east side of the continent of Africa on the Indian Ocean and as part of that tour we were on we had the opportunity for some cultural exchange and some of it was planned and some of it was spontaneous and some of it was orchestrated by me but in any case, it was all a wonderful blessing. And I, I would love nothing more than to just talk and talk and talk about the things we did. But time and Will's assignment for me prohibit me a little bit. But I do want to tell you about one particular interaction. Um, it was a very special interaction with a, I guess I'll just call him the assistant chief of a leader of indigenous peoples there called the Iraq tribe. My wife can do that sound much better than I can. But the Iraq tribe. And interesting sidebar, the Iraq indigenous people are direct descendants of the Kushites that are mentioned in the Bible more than a thousand years prior to Christ. And in fact, there's some credible evidence if you follow the little threads that Father Moses married a Kushite woman. So, Anyway, connection there. This particular individual's name is Baba Dingi. Baba means father in Swahili. And he's on the order of my age, maybe slightly younger. And he's, we shared an exchange that was very, very different. Uh, while the few others on our tour were variously occupied, in fact, during this particular time, Michelle was learning to cook a very traditional Swahili meal to serve everybody, and learning to do it with six words of Swahili in her vocabulary from women who had about that many words of English in theirs. But it was excellent. Another sidebar. But because the others were distracted, Baba Dingi and I were able to talk, and I mean really talk, we're way past the standard tourist stuff and niceties. And he was telling me about his efforts to bring his people, his tribe, into at least the 20th century, if not the 21st century. 
He was trying to lead them away from all the ancient traditions, some of which you're already thinking about, but I'll just describe simply male domination of society and multiple marriages and abuse and mutilation of young women and some of that. And what he's trying to lead them into is English speaking as a uniform second language and into a Christian ethos. Even religion as, a, as an education and a way to be. And you can imagine the mountain of effort that that is. Uh, it's extraordinary. And he's, he's extremely dedicated to it. And, and he asked for prayer and support. And in our exchange, I had the opportunity to ask him, why are you doing that? And he ha- he's pretty good with English. Uh, I'd be lying if I said it was perfect, but he's pretty good with it. But he struggled to articulate an answer to that question. It's obviously a hard question. And he, you could see the thought processes on his, on his face when he was trying to tell me about it. And he finally decided to call it his purpose. And I interpreted in context to mean, well, he means his vocational calling, that thing that he feels driven to do, that he he knows his work is not done until he has made some progress on that. And he asked me very seriously for, for prayer and encouragement, and we prayed on the spot. And he invited my wife and I to come live with him for a month. And for me to preach in the village after morning chores and before bedtime, every day for a month living with him. And I may go back. But the point is, that's what he felt was a calling. So I dug in a little bit. I'm not any good at etymology, the study of words, but I I did some reading online. I was trying to figure out the root of the word call. I want to understand what that means. And as near as I can tell, and I'm having to interpret because there's not an answer to that question. I just read a bunch of different things and and put it together. And this is what I think. I think that in both Greek and Hebrew, the languages that the, the Bible was introduced to the world in and spread for the first many, many years of its existence, that the term call has a root in, it has a, a baseline meaning of being named. And you know the Jewish connection to naming things. There's a lot of information in the name. And so if you read a little longer, I think it really means it's more than just being named. It's bestowing an identity is what a call means. So now my answer, my interpretation is that to be called means to accept an invitation or if you prefer something more imperative, a summons from God to accept your identity as His child. So, now it's getting deeper and deeper and beyond. What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, our Bible says that one, only one, Jesus, was begotten of the Father meaning born directly of His loin and likeness. All other beings, according to the Bible, are created, meaning made from scratch, if you will. And our Bible uses wonderful imagery. Remember all the imagery that is in there because we can't quite understand the situation. The imagery says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
And the images of a potter sitting at a wheel and his hands are on a glob of the stuff of the earth, the clay, and there's water and he's molding it and he's shaping it and he gets it just right. He breathes the breath of life into it and we are born. But isn't it curious that that image from the Bible writer suggests that God needs opposable thumbs? You suppose that's a requirement or just an image that's for something that we don't understand exactly, that might even be beyond our image ability. So, turns out the Bible also says that God might not even need hands. He does some of His best creating by just thinking it or saying it. And the easy, low-hanging fruit, there's the creation story in Genesis. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So however you think of it, creating this way, creating this way, creating any way you can think of, maybe ways you can't think of, importantly, God created us, the Bible makes it clear, in and for His joy. Oh my gosh, what is God's joy? Well, the Bible suggests, and very many thoughtful commentators and writers about the Bible suggest that God's joy is something described, we might grasp, as the creating force of love. And if that's so, consistent with that thought, what creating love can do is create. Beauty, hope, wonder, and most importantly, more love. So it seems to me that in that context, love, permanent love like God is permanent, suggests that stuff of resurrection might not be so elusive after all. So, do you even have to understand it? I don't think so. I'm going to tell you another story. This is a personal favorite about not making it more hard than it is. And I hope you can remember some of this. It's from a book called Feynman's Rainbow. Feynman is Dr. Richard Feynman. He's a professor at Caltech in physics. But that's not really all that important right here. The story is true. It's written from the perspective of one of Dr. Feynman's graduate students. And the story begins for us with the student's frustration with the process of selecting a dissertation topic in physics. And it's very difficult and it's very demanding and it's very focused and technical and he's trying to do that. And at issue is the fact that this student has a type A head-butting personality that exactly conflicts with Dr. Feynman's type A head-butting personality. And they're both losing patience, but there's an extra factor. Feynman is losing patience because he knows he's terminally ill. And so they've just had a big argument and then the story starts. What I want to tell you about is there's been a cooling off period and Feynman has called the student back into his office and they're going to continue their work. And so when the student arrives, Feynman is looking out the office window at a magnificent rainbow in the clouds. The student comments that Dr. Feynman is looking at it like it's the first rainbow he's ever seen. Or maybe that it'll be the last. 
And so the student joins him at the window and he's standing there and they're looking out at it and the student says, it was a pretty magnificent rainbow. But I was afraid to say anything about it because I didn't want him to think I was thinking about stuff other than the really important business at hand. And so the student and the professor stand there in silence for a moment and finally the student decides to break the silence with something very physics and he says, Sir, do you know who first described the physical nature of a rainbow? And the professor answered instantly. He said, yeah, it was Descartes. And the professor lets the silence hang for a minute and then he says to the student, and what do you suppose was the salient feature of the rainbow that inspired Descartes' mathematical analysis? And so the student's thinking, oh, God, a despicable physics test. I'm going to have to come through here. So he thinks and wonder, ponders and wonders and he starts unloading all the physics answers. He says, well, clearly he realized that a rainbow is a, is a cross-section of a cone that's generated by an arc of light when then sunlight comes from behind the observer and hits all this moisture and raindrops in the air and all the water droplets bend light and there's prismatic action and all the different wavelengths are spread out and blah, 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 blah. And the professor thinks on that for a minute and says, and? and? So the student's got the hangdog thing going on. He doesn't know what to say next. So he thinks of a sign. Oh, this is brilliant. He says, well, I suppose that Descartes realized that each individual raindrop has boundary conditions and you can assign boundary conditions for those and then you can integrate over all the possible visible space for those and the result in the visible spectrum will be this rainbow. And he was proud of himself. And the professor lets that hang for a minute and he says, I think you're missing the most important feature. And the student is crestfallen and he doesn't know what to do. And so he finally decides to say, okay, I give up. What do you think is the salient feature that inspired Descartes' analysis? And the professor says, I think his inspiration was that he thought rainbows were beautiful. So, I hope I'm making a point that you don't have to understand the creating force of love and your call. What you have to understand is that you've been given a priceless opportunity to participate in it. I know all of you have, but you're not thinking about it right now. Consider, if you will, all the interactions with those people that have loved you through the years or that love you now. Or all those people that you love in the past or present, and the way you've interacted together in family and friendship and relationship, or even some of those situations where it may have been just entirely random interaction, but love was exchanged in something. Where's that love go? Is it consumed in the effort? Or does it hang around and change the people that were participating in it? It's with you always and you know it. Right this minute, you're thinking of things that you're different, you're better, you're changed because of an exchange of love. Isn't that something? And that seems to me to suggest that kind of permanence, that kind of persistence of this thing called love changes the possibility of resurrection from from an elusive possibility 
to something much, much more significant. Chris, I'm wrapping up. You guys can come on up if you like. Throughout our Bible, there's imagery of resurrection that describes things like a perfect body and no more tears and streets of gold and all that stuff. You've, you've heard the images. You, you understand that. But remember that all of those things are things you never had in the first place. So whatever else it might be or not be, resurrection is is more than a restoration process. It's even more perhaps than the proclamation of creating love. It may even be the inevitable result of creating love. It's the beyond limit of those completely free to love in Christ. Whether you understand it or not, peace be among you. And amen. Perhaps you've thought of it already, but I want to point out that in our corporate prayer that we've been using lately that begins with, God, release the resurrection power of your Holy Spirit. You know that God is always working. What happens when that resurrection power is released is we start doing our part. That's what happens in that release. And so whether we're helping the kids at resurrection in Pigeon Forge or our neighbors or anyone whom we're with, that resurrection power is making a difference and it is permanent. So now may the most excellent grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit go with each of you into the next few minutes, the next few hours, and indeed into forever and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. And remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.